Hello and welcome to episode number 162 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening wherever you're listening from. I hope you're keeping safe. hope you're keeping sane. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from York Norman, professor of history at Buffalo State College and the author of Jelal Nuri, Young Turk Modernizer and Muslim Nationalist, published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury. The book looks at the life of Jalal Nuri, a journalist and politician whose career spanned the late Ottoman period after the Young Turk Revolution of 1908 under the regime of the Committee of Union and Progress, the CUP, and the early Republican periods. He's a paradoxical figure who simultaneously held views on social reform and women's rights that are still appealing today, as well as many perhaps less appealing hardline nationalist views. He advocated a unique blend of modernization and westernization with Turkish nationalism and Muslim reformism, which set him apart in some crucial ways from his more powerful contemporaries. The book does a very good job of delving into those paradoxes, which York Norman addresses later in the interview. But before we get started, let me remind you that our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 can be found over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're on Instagram as well now, just search for Turkey Book Talk Podcast, all one word. And remember, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. And that, of course, includes the book that we're talking about in this very episode. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey. Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre orders, and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge at least $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with York Norman. His book is the first significant study of Jalal Nuri's life to appear in English, so I started by asking him to introduce his subject. Of all the many prominent figures from this era, why does Jalal Nuri warrant such a close study today? I began looking at Jalal Nuri as part of a broader project on intellectuals during the Young Turk era. I'm a Balkanist by training, and the very first time I ran into Jalal Nuri was actually in Sarajevo, Bosnia. I read some translations of a famous work he did on the unity of Islam that was in Bosnian, and I it really piqued my curiosity about him. And then I followed up by looking at his wartime propaganda. And so that's really how I began to get interested in Jalal Nuri. 
But over time, I decided to do a project really more dedicated on him proper. And when I looked at general intellectual histories of that time period, it really focused in general on more military revolutionary leadership, if not Mustafa Kemal, obviously in a later period, but also people like Enver Pasha or Talak Pasha. And I was really drawn to looking more at sort of the civilian wing of the CUP. And of course, for me, people's work like Kaniolu's work on uh, Abdullah Jevdet was really intriguing, more the liberal modernizing figures. And I also located Jalal Nuri there, but there was always this tension between sort of Jalal Nuri's modernization efforts and his, I would say, almost hyper-nationalistic rhetoric. So it really was a puzzle for me to work out how he could be so progressive in many ways and yet illiberal in others. And uh, this really got me thinking much more broader about Turkish political history, the chances of liberalism, democratic development, but on the other hand, intolerance and sort of a, a political culture where one political party really disses the other and he's part of the problem. So I guess that's, in a nutshell, what drove me to study Jalal Nuri. So he was a journalist and uh, later an MP, actually, throughout the first years of the Republic. Uh, he was an MP. He was a writer, a novelist, a general purveyor of ideas. But uh, right. as you make clear in the book, he's quite hard to pigeonhole. And uh, he had many eclectic views, really, cutting across many ideological divides, actually, rather unorthodox character. Mm -hmm. uh, you describe him as, quote, in equal part a modernist and Muslim nationalist. Perhaps his most significant public duty was his uh, role in the Constitutional Committee of 1924. So that's the year after the founding of the Republic of Turkey, of course. Just talk about how that role came about and uh, what exactly did it involve and what can we learn from that episode? Well, to me, it was a very interesting moment because he worked uh, directly under Yunus Nadi and also obviously with a lot of oversight from Mustafa Kemal himself. He had written a key tract as early as 1919 in praise of Mustafa Kemal and his Congress at Sivas. And at that point, he started to argue for a new type of, I would argue, almost constitutional monarchy in a way. He was looking for some sort of at least symbolic continuity with the previous Ottoman government. He wanted to salvage some sort of evolutionary change in contrast to the revolutionary change that occurred. So when he joined that constitutional committee, he was hoping at least to get part of the program done. It was, of course, a very forlorn hope. He was involved after 1919 in the uh, unionist opposition to the British occupation and he had uh, participated in the last Ottoman government, was very vocal in his sentiments. He was very much in support, of course, of the Misaki Mili, the National Pact. And as a result, he was sent in exile. 
to Malta. And like much of the unionist leadership, he was sidelined after that point. So he came back in the fall of 21 and he had to go to Ankara. And there he worked with Mustafa Kemal, but it was pretty obvious that he would have to follow the lead of the uh, more hardline nationalists under Mustafa Kemal. So by 1923, he started publishing again to try to argue for at least some sort of symbolic continuity. And part of the argument he had was to look at the caliphate as a type of symbolic head of state. And so he tried to salvage that to no avail. In the Constitutional Committee, of course, this was done after the abolition of the caliphate. So that by that point, it was out of question. Definitely, you know, he'd have to work within the confines of the republic. But for me, what was interesting and intriguing is two things. First, in that constitution, the original 1924 constitution, Islam is claimed as the state religion. And I believe he definitely would have been in defense of that. Second is his notion of citizenship, which he argued in the parliament itself when they were discussing the constitution. And there he was focusing on defining the Turk as someone who was culturally Turkish and was Hanafi Sunni Muslim. And I found that pretty striking. So in that sense, I think he tried to maintain an idea of Muslim nationalism that would somehow fit within a Turkish context. It didn't work, but that was his attempt. Of course, the opposition to Mustafa Kemal was very fragmented at the time. You're looking at the beginnings of the first opposition to Ataturk there of the quote-unquote more moderate unionists, the Progressive People's Party, which of course was shut down. Uh, Jalal Nouri was not part of that. He sided with Mustafa Kemal, but I think that was a tactical move in that he hoped to get more accomplished as secretary of this constitutional committee. And it should be noted that the um, reference to Islam as the state religion was next within four years. So he had limited traction, but that was his hope to get something done in that committee. It was a Faustian bargain for him, which never panned out. The other thing I would say is that by that point in the Constitutional Committee, when he was there, there was increasing pressure on opposition journalists, including himself, and he no doubt felt that. So just very shortly after pushing through this Constitution, he got himself into trouble and had his press shut down, basically because he was criticizing the government for alleged links to uh, wealthy Armenians who were trying to come back to Istanbul in July 1924. His press was shut down completely at that point. So it's an interesting thing. Obviously, it didn't work for him, but his hopes were, I believe, to incorporate some sort of Muslim nationalist identity into the emerging consensus under Mustafa Kemal. And during this period, he served as an MP. Yes, it's true. It's true. And he served as an MP from 1923 up until 1934. So he continued through most of his life there. 
it's almost a kind of internal opposition within the the CHP single party rule right. at the time. Right, and there were others like that, right? So, yeah. for example, Hussein Jahid Yelchin was a similar type of personality. He was a key figure within the unionist movement, and then. With the declaration of the republic, he uh, was in support of Mustafa Kemal. He never joined the uh, Progressive People's Party, the opposition, and um, still he had major issues with sort of the mainstream Kemalists on major reform projects. In particular, for Jahid, it would be language, of course, and Jalal Nouri had similar sentiments. So he was not alone in that regard. But uh, Jalal Nouri was, like others, relatively isolated and uh, unable to form any sort of effective opposition to what was going on. So uh, let's get a bit deeper into his uh, views now, you know, the bread and butter, really, of his uh, public profile as a writer. So throughout this whole period, as well as being an MP and having this uh, public role, he was writing constantly, had this uh, press, as you mentioned there. He obviously expressed many views on many different issues, and uh, you describe him as being very much uh, a very hardline kind of figure. He was harsher and more intolerant in many ways on minorities, even in the official line throughout both the, the CUP, the Young Turk era, and also obviously the uh, early Republican era when he right. served as an MP. You describe him as subscribing almost to a kind of social Darwinism, uh, which reflected this harsh, the zero-sum calculations of the era, and obviously involved rather chauvinistic views. What was it that made him particularly hardline on this issue of minorities? Uh, obviously, he wasn't alone in this era on that front, but um, he was actually taking much harder lines than many official policies of the CUP and the early republic, which were already pretty harsh. Right. Number of things to say. First, in terms of the reasons why he took a hard line, first of all, you need to consider his background. His family, at least his father's side, came from Crete. This was an island that was annexed by the uh, Greeks. The final annexation occurred uh, during the first months of the CUP after the so-called revolution in 1908. So he felt definite pressure because of that. He also was on his mother's side of Albanian background. And like many leading unionists, he was from areas that were under greater threat, namely the Balkans or from the Caucasus area. And I think he shared a lot of similar sentiments with other unionists in that regard. So a lot of the the paranoia, the uh, concern about pending annexation of peoples being wiped out. A lot of the fear is part of that Balkan Caucasian background, which he came from and shared with others. So that's one piece, I would say. Another important piece to consider is the fact that when he first got into writing journalism, something that he started after the uh, March incident in 1909, the um, initial counter coup against the CUP, it really pushed him into journalism. And the very first place that he worked was actually for a French newspaper that was tied to the World Zionist Organization. And the problem for him was that this 
newspaper and his ties to it came under criticism, particularly by 1911 with the Italian invasion of Libya. And I believe he had an exaggerated response in part due to that as well. And uh, it, it really is pretty incredible because beforehand he would talk in pretty glowing terms about at least some of the leading Zionist figures. Max Nordau, for example, was one of his leading intellectual influences. And yet after that event, he really slipped into some very harsh anti-Semitic rhetoric. One other thing I would say, and just going back to family again, his father and uncle were uh, very much involved in the Hamidian period as well as the Young Turk period. His uncle was a leading theologian. His father was governor of Mosul and active as um, you know administrator in many outside provinces. As part of that, he wrote very harsh tracts, particularly on the Yezidis, another minority. And uh, this, I, I think, really had its effect on him as well. So it's it's basically a mixed uh, family situation, his own problems with uh, being accused as as being, quote unquote, a foreign agent. And then beyond that, just the general fears of the CUP. But he did have a very harsh rhetoric that he used at certain key points. One thing I point out in the book in particular is how he went after the uh, Greek community just after the first Balkan War, which was a devastating defeat for the Young Turks. And he seems to incite urban riot against the Greeks. And I found that very striking. One thing I would point out, and this is the, the prior literature on J.L. Elnery, they almost always deal with other aspects than nationalism or this political rhetoric. It focuses on his views on Islam, which was more mainstream. They focus on language and they focus on women's issues. They do not touch on minorities. And I think this is because it's such a particularly sensitive topic. You uh, touch on it there. I mean, his views on Islam are quite interesting as well. You describe him as a Muslim nationalist. But from what I can tell from the book, he wasn't actually much of a religious believer. Instead, he sort of believed in using uh, the Muslim community as a kind of ideological tool, really, a kind of spearhead of modernization. Yeah. It's kind of weird combination of vulgar materialism and religion, in a way. Again, very paradoxical. And he had this quite original view of Islam as this uniquely rational and logical religion, and therefore well-suited to a modernization project that was basically sidelining religion in all practical senses. Could you just dig into that for us? Yeah, I think for him, the whole point here was to try to in fact, ethnicize religion to create a firm political identity group. It was not something he did out of spiritual conviction at all. It was his own understanding that the only way to prevent another march event from happening, to prevent political reaction, you had to somehow incorporate Islamic identity into progressive politics. And that's what he tried to do. Uh, he was definitely not alone in that regard. One of the key influences on him 
was, of course, Abdullah Jevdet, who was behind Ijtihad, the uh, major journal that promoted vulgar materialism. And in many ways, Abdullah Jevdet was his mentor. But it was really much more of a project for him to try to create a common identity and then use this identity to help promote this larger project of his of a new entrepreneurial Turkish middle class. In a certain weird way, it reminded me of Weber, you know, the Protestant work ethic. I I believe he saw this idea of building up a middle class, not just not just the national economy, not just building, you know, industries, et cetera, but actually building middle class incorporated this cultural aspect. He also saw parallels with other nationalist movements. So even though he's cursing the Armenians or Greeks or Jews all the time, he did laud their movements. In particular, I'm reminded of Max Nordau, who he was inspired by very often. And he saw his idea of building up a new nation through empowering a middle class based on a political religion, very important. So he saw Max Nordau's idea of Zionism as a model to be emulated in the Ottoman Empire. So he thought that building up sort of a Hanafi Sunni identity group would help bolster a nationalist in their own regard. But he did not have a sense of nationalism that was overly, I don't know how to put this, overly racial in the sense he did not focus on Turks alone. He had more of a broader vision of what it was to be a Turk. It would be more of a cultural assimilatory model, um, sort of reminiscent of the French uh, nationalist thinker Renan, rather than what we would see later as sort of a, a racist definition of a nation. For him, focusing on Islam as an, a political identifier was critically important. I would say, too, though, that his influence is definitely there in that regard. I mean, the idea of defining a Turk as speaking Turkish, having Turkish culture, but not rigidly defined, continued. And even this aspect of being Hanafi Sunni, although rejected by mainstream Kemalists, had a lasting legacy. So there is something there for sure. It also should be noted that his works on Islam were much more avidly read among uh, not just unionist circles, but Mustafa Kemal himself. He had two copies in his personal library. So there is some influence, that's for sure. And of course, in many ways, those views that uh, we're describing there, they actually in many ways chime with the spirit of the age, you know, secular minded people using religious identity to achieve particular right. political ends. You know, that was indeed the uh, Kamalist project in many ways. Right. No, I agree. Um, it's I think the difference, though, is that Jalal Nuri wanted to hold on to the symbols of Islam longer than the mainstream Kemalists would. So the idea of having at least an official statement that Islam was the religion was important to him. Likewise, trying to keep some sort of caliphate as a a symbolic 
head of religious community was something that would fall flat. That was, you know, a problem for him. But he thought and saw symbolic Islam as having great political benefits in trying to draw in the masses. Whereas without that, you were likely to have a situation where the country would fall apart or at least be uh, starkly divided. What about uh, Jalal Nouri's views on women? Because you describe him in the book as having actually quite progressive views on this. Um, Yes. So what did that actually mean in practical, concrete terms? Well, what that meant in concrete terms is that he, along with Zia Gukalp, who had a dialogue with him on this, had some influence in the uh, development of the 1917 family law, in which there were limits on uh, polygamy, greater rights for women on divorce, and there was as well limited freedom for employment, etc. So he was pushing, like you say, for more than the unionist government was willing to give. It was interesting to look at his rationale for it because he saw this whole push for greater women's rights as an important point for rallying the nation in a time of dire need. So it's it really goes back to this idea of quote unquote, saving the state. It also, later on, he would be lauded by the Kemalists. He would be brought back in the 1930s when it came to discussions of women's rights. And um, it's interesting to see that he had some impact there. His work on women is still well lauded. So yes, again, it, it was very progressive and did have some lasting impact. And that is why there are a fair number of references on Jalal Nouri's work on women in existing literature today. One chapter in the book is devoted to his views of the Turkish language reforms, and he spent actually quite a lot of his career on this. And obviously, uh, the the Turkish language reforms that were passed shortly after the a few years after the founding of the the republic involved uh, the wholesale transition from the Ottoman script to the Latin script, and that involved a a huge purge of the language and um, a simplification in many ways and a lot of neologisms coming into the language. And uh, he had actually been working on this from the the late Ottoman period, and he was obviously very interested in it when things accelerated in in the Republican era. Interestingly, he had this quite gradualist, dovish stance, actually. He was in favour of the reform, but he was against the sweeping purge of Arabic and Persian words uh, that was attempted with the official shift from Ottoman to Latin script in 1928. So could you just talk about his interesting and original stance on that particular reform? Yeah, like many other things regarding reforms, he was much more evolutionary in outlook He did want Ottoman to be transformed into modern Turkish in that there should be an alphabet change, but he did not want the change to be promulgated top down. He had initial problems with this really uh, after 1914 when Anwar Pasha began to change the alphabet. He altered the Arabic script. It wasn't a full-fledged Latinization, but he reacted to that. 
He also reacted to uh, Zia Gokulp and his advocacy for a language institute, again, during the wartime era. So he was he was allergic to a top-down radical change. He thought instead that there should be a gradual reform of the language, really brought about through the literary activity of existing elites like himself, journalists, novelists, in the schools, etc. But he did not want it to be done in as much dramatic form as it was. What you see at first is his reaction towards the unionists, like I'd mentioned. Later on, he would argue mightily with the Kemalists to take a much more gradualist approach too. He wrote a key work in 1926 on this, on Turkish language reform. It's called Turkish reform, actually, Turkin Kalaba. And he obviously knew what was coming down the pike. He was not successful at all there. He not only did not want the alphabet to uh, change gradually, he also was highly resistant to this idea of a language institute, which would purge Persian and Arabic-based words wholesale, something called the uh, uh, language revolution. So there's alphabet revolution and language revolution. So he, he resisted that as well. The problem was in 1928, when you had the first act to change the alphabet, it was more or less by dictate, and therefore he had no chance to really voice his opposition. During that first Turkish language conference in 1928, he did attend, but it's very telling he did not make any statement. And then later in 1932, when you had the Language Institute created, he would be opposed to that as well. So that he was very much on the losing end of that, but his his sentiments were quite clear. Again, he had a much more evolutionary view of the world in contrast to a more revolutionary approach, which imposed first the uh, alphabet change in 1928 and then so the whole scale purge of the language in 1932. The other thing I would say there is he was very much concerned that by jettisoning, jettisoning the uh, vocabulary uh, wholesale, you would lose your heritage, your sense of identity, and even more importantly than that, ties to the people. So this idea of a common Muslim identity that he held would be broken as a result. So again, it goes back in a weird way to his own nationalist ideals, that of more common Muslim nationalism. I thought the book was actually a, a nice reminder, really, that uh, these ideas about reforming the Turkish language did go back quite a long way. Oh, absolutely. A long way before, you know, the, the Republican efforts, decades uh, into the 19th century even. So right, those right. Kemalist reforms... 1851 really with Ahmed yeah. Javdat and from there onwards, right? Yeah, so th those reforms are really building on very deep roots. I just wonder, pushing things forward a bit, how did Jalal Nouri experience the Kemalist era? Because we're getting this picture of him as this kind of internal opposition in a way. And uh, as you describe it in the book, he went rather quiet in his uh, latter years and he was somewhat uh, silenced, actually, unable right. to very uh, freely engage in the public conversation in the um, increasingly single party, rather stifled Kemalist atmosphere. 
And uh, you describe him as being rather embittered in his later years, actually. But he remained an MP. Could you just describe that period until his death in 1938? What happened in those years? Sure. Like I mentioned earlier, you had this constitutional reform. In the immediate wake of that, you had this incident with the Armenian expatriates who were trying to come back. And uh, he protested what he alleged was government involvement, implying that there were bribes taken, something like this. The uh, reaction was very harsh and very quick. Khalid Ali, one of the uh, main lieutenants of Mustafa Kemal, wind up coming to his press. He and his brother were there at the time. He was beaten and silenced. So that obviously was the beginning point for him. After that, you really have much more um, spotty publications uh, by him. Uh, you have a later work, like I mentioned, on language that came out in 1926. That was pretty much ignored. And then afterwards, in 1932, he wrote another work on a Turkish government and parliamentary tradition, uh, the one where he mentions, actually defends Hitler's ideas of restricting Jews in Germany. This is just before he takes power. So he was defending his political program. And um, that was uh, the last publication he had. Uh, there were also some other minor works that he did, uh, pushing language, actually, children's texts on language, and also uh, a book on citizenship. These were not political publications, however. They were attempts at textbooks, etc. It did not seem they went very far in that regard. He did remain an MP, as you said, but I think he was largely ignored, and he was one of the voices there who uh, became, in my opinion, increasingly shrill when it came to minority issues, but uh, was viewed uh, by alarm by the Kemalist authorities. So he, he really ran into uh, very strong headwinds at the very end. And uh, like I said, the, the major reforms that he had pushed, such as his idea of popularizing vulgar materialism, his ideas on politics, on language, on women, were largely outmoded by that point, right? So to me, it seems clear that he was unhappy with the lack of political influence really since 1924, and that that must have had a, a toll on him. Uh, it is ironic that he died in November 1938, uh, the same month as Ataturk himself. So there's a there's a lot to contrast between him and Mustafa Kemal, obviously. But yeah, that's where I'd come in terms of embitterment. The only other thing I would add is that it's true he was sidelined. It's true that others who like him had you know, more mainstream unionist views, they too were sidelined. The uh, uh, Progressive People's Party, for example, the opposition to the CHB being banned after the Sheikh Said revolt. And it seems clear that he, he would be embittered by that, but he should have realized too that that is the same way that the unionists 
had reacted previously to the liberal opposition in 1908-1909. So we sort of came full circle there in terms of intolerant political culture. So thinking more broadly now, uh, as we're saying here, Jalal Nouri was quite hard to pigeonhole, paradoxical in many ways. You know, he advocated reform and modernization in the name of national rejuvenation and essentially Turkish Muslim survival. And he often viewed the world in civilizational terms. And this was uh, a similar worldview, of course, to the Young Turks and later the Kemalists. And it's also very similar in some ways to today's government. You know, Muslim nationalist is a term that you use to describe Jalal Nuri. But it's also a term that's used sometimes to describe President Erdogan and his political project. Did that through line to contemporary ideological currents also occur to you as you were researching this book? Yes, but I would say that you can't forget that Jalal Nuri's real identity, in fact, his last name, his taken last name meant progress, right? His last name was Ileri. He was very progressive. And what that meant is that he was afraid of religious reaction. He was definitely elitist in orientation. He was not a popular Islamist by any stretch of the imagination. So I don't see him really as the same, except that his notion of Islamic identity was one that has been adopted, although in radically different ways. I mean, as we talked about earlier, Jalal Nuri did not believe in the spiritual qualities of Islam. He believed in the political symbolism of Islam, a very cynical view, which I don't think was adopted after that point. So in that sense, I would say he's definitely different. But there is, of course, this legacy of identity politics, which continues and which he contributed to. That was York Norman. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 162. Remember, his book is available to all Turkey Book Talk Patreon members for a 35% discount. Indeed, all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members for a 35% discount. Members also get transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put together by the journalist Diego Cupolo and a crack team. A package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.